Uh, a medical doctor was invited to church to learn about Christianity, and his response to that invitation was, I'm a man of science. Now, my response to that is, so am I. Uh, I am as well. But when it comes time to die, science will not get me to heaven. Uh, only the Lord Jesus will. Science helps us greatly in the physical world, but there is another world, the spiritual world, and science is unable to connect us to that world. Now, I begin this way this morning because people often wrongly conclude that science and Christianity are incompatible. Uh, like the doctor, they think that Christianity is unscientific, and actually contradicts science. So they dismiss the Bible as a book about religion that deals with beliefs, not facts, and they assume that science is what deals with practical things that we can see, that we can touch, we can prove, and we can use. But think with me this morning. What is the real truth? Well, the real truth is that science and Christianity are complementary, not contradictory. They harmonize. A Christian can be a scientist, and a scientist can believe in Christianity. God, who sent Jesus to save us, is the same God who created the laws of science to help us. In fact, this Bible that we hold to very firmly affirms science and accurately describes science. Now, this morning, I want to bring a message, perhaps unlike any other that I have ever preached. We're going to take a little break for a few Sundays from our series on the Sermon on the Mount. We will pick up with that series after Easter Sunday. But this morning, I want to bring a message entitled, Science and Scripture, Enemies or Friends. And I want to take you on a fascinating journey this morning, unlike perhaps any journey that you have ever been on in the Scriptures, to see that indeed science and Scripture are friends. Now, I want to do two things this morning. First of all, I want us to look at the basic premise about the Bible and science. And then secondly, I want to go on a journey and show you the scientific accuracy of the Bible. And so I hope you have your Bibles with you and that you will follow along with me. But let's begin, shall we, with a statement uh, of the basic premise about the Bible and science from the renowned late theologian Francis Schaeffer. Uh, by the way, doesn't he just look smart? I mean, there are some people that not only are smart, but they just look smart. And if you can't uh, at least be smart, at least you ought to be able to look smart. And Francis Schaeffer was both. But I want you to notice this very uh, accurate and profound statement that he made. He said, God gave us religious truths in a book of history and a book that touches on the cosmos, the universe, as well. 
What sense does it make for God to give us true religious truths and at the same time place them in a book that is wrong when it touches history and the cosmos? Now that is exactly right. And it is extremely effectively well said. Now, let's unpack this together for just a moment. And notice a number of things that I think are true that come out of what Dr. Schaefer said. First of all, the Bible is not a science textbook. Uh, the Bible was not written to show us how to do science. That's not its purpose. Uh, a number of years ago, I, I got swimmer's ear. First time in my life I've ever had swimmer's ear, and it was very, very painful. And so finally I went to uh, the doctor, and uh, they gave to me this tiny little bottle of drops in it. And just after a few days, that cleared up my swimmer's ear. And I just have to say to you this morning, I'm very grateful for the scientist who uh, discovered what was ever in that bottle because it really, really helped me. Um, if you want to cure swimmer's ear, the Bible will not help you do that, will it? Uh, that's not its purpose. Uh, the Bible is not designed to help us do science. We need scientists to help us develop eardrops for swimmer's ear. Now that being said, there's a second principle that we need to understand and I think Dr. Schaefer makes very wonderfully, when the Bible speaks scientifically, it is accurate. Okay? Because God is the God of truth who cannot lie, He makes no errors. Therefore, when His book describes the physical world in which we live, it describes that physical world accurately. Therefore, when God, who created the laws of science, mentions the laws of science in His book, He is correct in what He says. Now here's the third premise that comes out of this. If the Bible cannot be trusted scientifically, then it cannot be trusted spiritually. I once worked as a custodian uh, with a Christian who had some seminary training. And one day he shocked me with this question. He said, what difference would it make if the Bible has errors in it? How would that affect your faith? You ever thought about that? How would it affect our faith if we knew the Bible had errors in it? Well, let me tell you how it would affect our faith. If we can't trust the Bible for history and science, how can we trust it for salvation? Is that not right? If God makes errors in things that we can check, how can we trust Him in what we cannot see in the spiritual realm? It makes a tremendous difference if the Bible has errors in it. God's very untrustworthiness is at stake in everything He affirms in Scripture. 
And so it has a vast, vast importance to our faith. Now let's go on a little journey together, shall we? Let's look together at the scientific accuracy of the Bible in a number of ways this morning. Uh, let's begin with this one. The Bible teaches us that the universe and time had a beginning. I won't ask you to turn there, but all of you know the first verse in the Bible is, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So the Bible says the universe that we know of had a beginning. Do you know one of the biggest discoveries of modern astronomy is pictured on the screen in front of you, the expanding universe. Uh, when we walk out at night and look up into the sky, the stars that we see appear to be stationary. They appear not to be moving. But actually, astronomers tell us that the stars and the galaxies that contain the stars are all moving at incredible speeds outward. Our own Milky Way is moving in this expansion outward in the universe. Uh, in fact, we here on Earth, we are moving in at least three different directions. Did you know that? Uh, we are uh, spinning with the earth like a top on its axis. And then uh, the earth is rotating like a race car driver around the sun. And so we are rotating in the earth's orbit around the sun. And then our galaxy, the Milky Way, is moving along with the other galaxies in this expansion outward as the universe expands. Can anybody explain to me this morning how we're not dizzy here this morning? That's an incredible thing. Now here's what scientists have concluded. If everything is expanding in the universe, it is clear there was a starting point. There was some force at a central point that began this movement. Scientists have said the universe had a beginning. Now, scientists call this the Big Bang Theory. The Bible calls it God. But both conclude the universe at a beginning. You may know one of the most brilliant physicists of our day is the physicist Stephen Hawking. He's an atheist, a God denier, and yet he said this, the expanding universe is the discovery of the century, if not all time. Now, if the universe had a beginning, then time had a beginning. And the Bible teaches this. Turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 1. And I want you to notice a little statement that most of us just read over and uh, never take time to ponder the scientific accuracy of this statement. Look at 2 Timothy 1 and notice with me verse 9. And notice this little statement that Paul just drops in which we now know is absolutely scientifically accurate. 2 Timothy 1.9 says this, Who has saved us, talking about God, and called us to a holy life 
Not because of anything we have done, but because of His own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. So the Bible is telling us clearly that time had a beginning. Now time can be defined in this way. It is the measured continued progress of existence and events. And so if there was a starting point, then that's when time started measuring the progress of existence so when the universe began, that's when time began. Uh, would you look at this statement by Stephen Hawking? Time itself must have a beginning. Isn't that quite an amazing thing for an atheistic physicist to agree with what the Bible says? That's how incredibly accurate the scriptures are. Let's look at another example. Another example in the Bible of its scientific accuracy is the Bible teaches us that the earth is a sphere, not a flat disk. I want you to turn with me to the book of Isaiah. We're going to come back here to Isaiah in a little bit. But I want you to turn there, first of all, to Isaiah chapter 40. And I want you to notice what Isaiah says in verse 22 of Isaiah 40. Now remember that Isaiah is writing in about the 7th century B.C. And listen to what he says in verse 22 of Isaiah 40. He sits above, enthroned, the circle of the earth. And its people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy and spreads them out like a tent to live in. Now notice that first statement. God sits enthroned above the circle of the earth. Uh, the Hebrew word that Isaiah uses here for circle is the Hebrew word kug, kug. It means a circle or a sphere. The verb means to draw round or to make a circle. And Isaiah is writing this um, probably somewhere in the early uh, 700 to 750 B.C., now let me just share with you what an astounding thing this is. Pythagoras, the Greek philosopher, is the first known person to teach that the world was round. He taught this in about the 6th century BC. It was widely believed before then that the earth was a flat disk that floated on top of the ocean. Now, notice then what this means. Let me just say it, all right, as you saw it here. Isaiah predated the person who first taught that the earth was a sphere by about 150 years. What an incredible discovery that is for us. 
Let's look at another one together. Thirdly, the Bible teaches us that the earth is an unsupported globe. Now, all of us know what this image is on the screen in front of us this morning. It is Atlas holding up the world on his back. By the way, if you know anything about this, you know that this image is inaccurate because Greek mythology actually said that Atlas held the pillars of the world on his back. So he held up the pillars that uh, supported the world. The ancient people believed that the world was supported on pillars. Now I want you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Job, which is right before the book of Psalms. And I want you to notice an incredible statement made by Job in Job chapter 26 and verse 7. And notice his words, all right? Listen to what he says. Job 26 and verse 7, he spreads out the northern skies over empty space. He suspends the earth over nothing. Nothing. You know what the Hebrew word nothing here means? means nothingness. You all are now Hebrew scholars on the Hebrew word nothing. It means nothingness. Now let me put this in context again for us. There was a Greek philosopher by the name of Anaximander. He was the first man that we know of who theorized that the earth hangs supported by nothing and he theorized this in the 6th century B.C. But it was not until the 1600s, that would have been 2200 years later, that this was conclusively verified with the invention of an instrument that you can now look out and examine the planets and the stars with, say it with me, the invention of the telescope. And so it wasn't until that time that what Anaximander theorized was actually conclusively verified. Now, I want you to come back here to Job. Job is considered to be a contemporary of Abraham who lived 4,000 years ago. The book of Job is one of the oldest books in the Bible and it shares with us the oldest account in the Bible. And so here is Job speaking 4,000 years um, ago under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And he clearly describes an unsupported globe thousands of years before scientists ever proved it. What an incredible Bible we have this morning. Let's look at another one that is extremely fascinating. This is the innumerable number of stars. Now, ancient people uh, attempted to count the stars, and they would go out and look up into the sky, uh, and they would try to count them. 
Uh, they came up with a number ranging from 3,000 uh, to 1,000. You know what astronomers tell us? You can go out with the naked eye on a clear night and you can count 4,000 stars. Okay? Um, now we now know that is a drop in the bucket. Okay? We now know the stars are innumerable. Let's take a little journey here through the Bible and see how God revealed this in His Word thousands of years ago to His people. Go with me to Genesis chapter 15. And you remember that God promised to Abraham that he would have many descendants, that he would become a great nation. And I want you to notice the analogy that God used with Abraham in Genesis 15 and verse 5. Look what he says. He took him outside and he said, Look up at the heavens and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then God said to Abraham, So shall your offspring be. Now it is very clear here that Abraham is uh, being uh, told, implied by God, that the stars were innumerable. And somebody might say, well, pastor, maybe this is just a metaphor. God is using uh, this statement uh, to say a large number, but it's just a metaphor. Well, let's follow this metaphor through a little bit. Look with me at Genesis 22, and I want you to notice how God takes this a little further in verse 17. And listen to what he says to Abraham this time, and now notice the comparison. I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Now God here is comparing the number of stars to the number of grains of sand on all the seashores in all the world. And now we begin to see, oh, God is not talking here just strictly metaphorically because we know the sand is innumerable. Uh, let's go a little further, and now God speaks to Jacob in chapter 32 of Genesis. And I want you to notice that God makes this innumerable number of sand grains of sand very, very clear. Look at verse 12, where God now repeats the promise to Jacob in Genesis 32. And he says, Jacob says to God, But you have said, I will surely make you prosper, and will make your descendants like the sand of the sea, which cannot be counted. Stars can't be counted. Stars are like the grains of sand. Grains of sand can't be counted. Is there any place where both are brought together? Yes. Let's look at Jeremiah, verse 22 of chapter 33. And notice how Jeremiah, reflecting back, on this ancient promise, hundreds and thousands of years later, puts both of these together so that we know God was just not speaking metaphorically, 
in a figure of speech, but he was speaking accurately. Look at Jeremiah 33, 22. I will make the descendants of David my servant, and the Levites who minister before me as countless as the stars of the sky and as measureless as the sand on the seashore. Both now brought together and said they are countless. Do you know it was not until 1609 when Galileo used a brand new invention which we all know is the telescope and for the very first time peering out into the universe now just 400 years ago from our standpoint realized the stars are innumerable. We now know that there are billions of galaxies just like our own and if you can make them out on the screen we have names for many of these galaxies that we can see. There's the spiral galaxy, the sombrero hat galaxy, the whirlpool galaxy, the loose spiral galaxy and now look at this. Astronomers now estimate there are 40 sextillion stars in the universe. How long do you think it would take to count that many stars? Many, many multiple myriad of lifetimes. And the Bible is completely accurate just as it says. Let's look at another one this morning. Uh, this one is one that fascinates me completely. It is the hydrologic or the water vapor cycle. Now you know that hydrology is the study of how water distributes itself over the earth and we now know these facts from science very, very well. If you're a student here in uh, grade school or junior high or high school, uh, sooner or later in your science class you are going to have a class on hydrology and this uh, picture gives us a very, very good understanding of what hydrology is, alright? Um, evaporation is when surface water is drawn up from uh, the surface waters of the earth into the sky in form of vapor. Transpiration is when surface water is drawn up from plants into the sky as vapor. Now, by the way, uh, I must have missed that lesson in my science class because I had never heard of transpiration until uh, I began studying for this message. I knew about evaporation, but transpiration, uh, the fact that the plants give off uh, vapor that is drawn up as well. That's also a part of the hydrological cycle. Then we know that uh, the next phase of this is condensation, when the clouds form uh, containing that water in the form of moisture. And then as you can see, 
The final stage is precipitation, when it rains back on the earth, running off back to the water supply, so that the final stage really is a fifth stage of accumulation. Now, can you believe in the wildest imagination that our Bible describes this? Scientifically, precisely. Uh, let's first of all go to uh, Solomon's question in Ecclesiastes chapter 1. Ecclesiastes comes right after Proverbs. So uh, turn to that uh, wonderful little book. And notice uh, one of the enigmas that Ecclesiastes begins with in chapter 1 and verse 7. All of us have witnessed this phenomenon. Notice what Solomon says in verse 7. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. Now we all recognize that, don't we? Rivers constantly run into lakes, uh, they run into the oceans, yet we uh, see that the oceans do not overflow. Uh, if you've ever flown over the Grand River as it flows out into Lake Michigan, you know it leaves a huge, huge plume. There's an amazing volume of water flowing into the southern Lake Michigan from the Grand River. And yet as you drive around Lake Michigan, you know that its water level is at one of the lowest points it's ever been. And you say, how in the world can this happen? How can you have a river, which is just one of many, flowing into Lake Michigan, and yet its water level is dropping? Well, we know that that happens because of evaporation. That evaporation is drawing up surface water from the lakes, and that's why sometimes the lakes fall, but in terms of the oceans, that's why there is a balance of water in the oceans. Now I want you to turn with me to a fascinating description of the hydrologic cycle in Isaiah 55 and verse 10. So you're in Ecclesiastes, turn a little bit to the back of your Old Testament to Isaiah 55 and I want you to notice with me verse 10 and notice this amazing statement by Isaiah describing what you have right on the screen listen to what he says as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish so it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater. Now do you see this? Rain and snow come down and water the earth. That's precipitation. It returns back to the heavens, the atmosphere. That's evaporation and transpiration. The only part that Isaiah leaves out is the process of condensation, which is obviously assumed in what he says. But, lest we think the Bible doesn't know about that part, turn with me back to Job 36. 
And notice how Job includes the entire hydrologic cycle in verses 27 and 28. Job 36 in your Bibles, and now you follow along with me. In fact, as I read these verses, you say, evaporation, transpiration, precipitation, condensation. And by the way, the process starts with evaporation. It doesn't start with precipitation. It is evaporation that starts first, and so that's the beginning of the cycle. Notice how accurate the book of Job is. Look at verse 27. He draws up the drops of water. Say it with me. Evaporation and transpiration. Notice the next statement. Which distill as rain to the streams. Say it with me. Precipitation. The clouds pour down their moisture. Say it with me. Condensation. And abundant showers fall on mankind. Who can understand how he spreads out the clouds? And notice, Job is so accurate, he begins at the beginning of the water cycle with vapor. He draws up the drops of water. Now let me remind you again, Job is a contemporary of Abraham, so this is being affirmed 4,000 years ago. Let's put this together with what we know. Aristotle was the very first man to comprehend the water vapor cycle. And he comprehended it in 300 B.C. Here's a second fact. It was only in the 19th century that it was discovered that air rising, which expands and cools, is what formed the clouds. So the water vapor cycle in its entirety did not become an accepted fact until the 1800s. But now listen to this. Isaiah described it accurately in 2700 B.C., and Job described it accurately in his book in 4000 B.C. And all God's people said, How incredible is this book that we hope. How incredible is this book that we hold. Now let's go back, shall we, to our statement by Dr. Schaefer. Because I think it is so very, very true. God gave us religious truths in the book of history. And a book that touches on the cosmos as well. What sense does it make for God to give us true religious truths and at the same time place them in a book that is wrong when it touches history 
and the cosmos. You see, if we can't trust the Bible historically and scientifically, then we really can't trust it spiritually. But knowing that we can trust it in the things that we can check, that encourages us to believe we can trust it when it tells us about God, about Jesus, about the resurrection, about the Holy Spirit, about a place called heaven, a place called hell, about the fact that we are sinners in need of a Savior, about eternal judgment that one day is coming when God sets upon His throne and all the earth is drawn before Him and the books revealing all of our sins are revealed. And on that day, unless there has been a God-man who has died for us, whom we have received by faith as our Lord and Savior, uh, we will be judged. But if we have received Him and He has saved us, judgment have already passed over us and by faith in Jesus Christ, we can know that we have passed out of death into life and someday, rather than eternal judgment, we will face eternal heaven in the presence of God because Jesus Christ is who the Bible says He is and He accomplished what He says He accomplished. How wonderful this is for us today. How absolutely wonderful. Always remember this, the Bible is, we do not believe the Bible, or we do not make the Bible true because we believe it. We believe the Bible because it is true. That's why we believe it. And knowing that it is true in matters like science and history, we know that it will not fail us in matters of the greatest importance our very salvation. In just a moment, we're going to gather around the table of the Lord and we're going to remember Jesus who died for us, paid for our sins, and rose again from the dead. And just before we do that, I want you to bow your heads with me and, and close your eyes. And I want to give you an opportunity to Come to Jesus today if you do not know Him. Perhaps coming today to our church, you never fathomed that you could have a science lesson just by reading the Bible. Uh, by the way, in my ABF class today, we're going to look at three more scientific facts uh, in the Bible. I was talking with one of them about with my son yesterday, and he said, "Well, Dad, we're just going over this in anatomy, in uh, in our science class in school." And so there are many others that I could point to today. But I just want you to know today that as you come here, that while God's word can be trusted, and while this is a fascinating journey. Your greatest need is to know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Your greatest need is to be born again. And Jesus came to this earth because He loved you, even though you are a sinner who rebelled against Him. He knows you personally, and having known all the wrongs that you've done, He nonetheless died on the cross to pay for your sins. And the Bible says that when He died, He uttered, It is finished. 
a word that means paid in full. And if you were the only sinner alive on earth, Jesus would have come for you because He loves you that much. And when He cried, it is finished, He paid for all of your sins. And God says to you, there's nothing you can do to earn favor with Him. You will never be able to earn your way into heaven. Jesus has already purchased that for you, and He asks you to do two things. Number one, to repent, to admit that you're a sinner, and to be willing to turn from your own way. The Bible says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and that's you. But the Lord has laid on him the sin, the iniquity of us all. And God asks you to turn from your own way, to repent and turn to Jesus. And then the second thing you must do is rather than depending upon your own goodness, instead place your faith and trust in Jesus to be your sin bearer, to be your Savior and your Lord. And the scripture says that if you will do that by an act of faith, you'll be forgiven, you'll be born anew, you'll be brought into the family of God. I want to give you the opportunity to do that before we partake of these elements. Would you bow your heads with me together and, and keep your eyes closed? And Maybe you're here and you're not sure that you know Jesus as your Savior. If you could say something like this privately, no words but just from your heart to God's, Lord, I believe that I'm a sinner. And I know that I've done many wrongs. But I believe, Lord Jesus, that you died for me. I believe that you rose again. And I'm repenting this very moment. I'm turning from my own way. And I'm turning to you. Come into my heart, Lord Jesus, and be my Savior. Come into my life, Lord Jesus, and be my Lord. Forgive me of all of my sins. Give me the gift of eternal life that will last forever. Make me this day a child of God. Would you say, Lord Jesus, from this day forward, God helping me, I will follow you as a follower of Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for saving me. And then for those of us who know the Lord Jesus, are we getting this message out? Are we as a church concerned about reaching the lost? If this is the only message that will avail for people's eternity, are we as a church focused upon making sure that our energy and effort goes to getting out the only message that will save souls for eternity. We believe our Bibles, we are convinced of them, but a message that is hidden in a book is a message that cannot save. The message must be made known. And knowing that we have such a great treasure, are we sharing that treasure with all the strength and resources that we have so that people might know the wonderful Savior, the wise and glorious God, 
that we know. Lord Jesus, our, our men are coming forward at this point to serve our communion. And you have spoken to us today about your trustworthiness, the integrity of your word. And Lord Jesus, today we pray that for those in the sound of my voice who are not sure that they belong to Christ, that this should be a day they would come to know the Savior. Father, I, I pray for others of us who might be very happy that we are receiving the truth, but are very little involved in helping to make sure that it gets out. Lord, I'm grateful for the witness of our men's Bible study. I'm, I'm grateful that many, many years ago, the men who started that study wanted to have it in a restaurant so that we could have a testimony, so that people would overhear men studying the Bible and that a witness would be given out in the community for Jesus. And I'm thankful for all the men, perhaps coming on that Tuesday to be enriched in their walk with you, and yet having a very public testimony that is overheard by all who come to that place. Help us, Lord, to be mindful of sharing your great truth with those who need to hear it. We love you today. And we come now around your wonderful table. For Jesus' sake, we ask it. Amen.